Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. I spoke in a recent episode about a colleague of mine who's got a really long criminal rap sheet. And what I failed to mention, because I didn't want to, like, paint too vivid a portrait of this guy, but the thing I was... I, I, I almost mentioned, because it seems so integral to describing what this man is like and what he's about, is the fact that he lies about everything. One of the characteristics I've come to consider a kind of red flag about someone, one one of the things that I kind of look toward in trying to determine whether a person that I've just met is somebody with whom I'd like to spend a little more time, or whether to give much credibility to the things that they say, is whether or not, in the course of their storytelling and conversation as we're getting to know each other, they turn out to be the hero of every story that they tell. And with this colleague that I'm talking about, who I haven't even given a fake name yet, I, well, let's call him James. With James, that's literally all he talks about. If you bring up spicy food, he talks about, yeah, no, I ate this spicy thing, it's no big deal. Everyone else at the table was sweating, I ate it, it was like, no big deal. He talks about times that he has evaded cops in traffic maneuvers. Yeah, no, he was telling me I could tell. No big deal, I just swerved and missed him, lost him, no sweat off my back. And another thing is that he's from New York, and so he does talk like that. Remember that old viral video of the chameleon who's doing LSD in a closet? Oh, this guy thinks he's Captain Knots. Thinks he's Captain Tying Knots. When everyone needs some knots tied, they go to him. Bullshit. He tells fights about how he subdued an aggressor, or how uh, police encountered him and confronted him on something, and they ended up baffled and recoiling because he knew the law so well and he put them in their place. A few weeks ago, we were talking, and uh, we both got this little period where we could have some food, and he was sitting next to me, and he holds up his phone. And he's got a big grin on his face and he goes, look what I did last night. And on his phone is, it's, it's a crypto wallet full of cryptocurrency and it shows a figure of $88,000 worth of Bitcoin. And he says to me, yeah, I've been sitting on this for a while, just sold it last night. But I noticed what he was showing me was an app called Coinbase. And that's the, that's, the, that's the app that I use for my very small supply of cryptocurrency. And so knowing how Coinbase works... I saw the screen that he was presenting to me, and I reached out kind of reflexively and and tapped it. I tapped on a particular function, and I saw that it wasn't the Coinbase app. It was a screenshot of someone else's Coinbase app. A little while after that, he pulled up a photo of a $60,000 car and claimed that he just bought it cash on the spot. No baubles, because he's going to tune it up himself. Meanwhile, he speaks casually about the fact that, like me, he lives in a lower-income part of Miami. And he talks about how he's constantly quarreling with his landlord who refuses to, to, to replace his, like, not, his non-functioning water heater. And part of me wants to point out, like, is, is itching to point out, like, James, these are not the complaints of someone who just sold $88,000 worth of cryptocurrency and just bought a $60,000 car. But that's the thing, is, like, I feel simultaneously like an asshole and like an idiot because to, 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 to ever venture toward kind of talking him into these corners because the lies are so howlingly transparent. But still, I find myself in these kind of mean-spirited games of, like, trying to wind his own lies around him so that he trips and stumbles and ends up, like, looking like a fool. But why? What is to be gained in making this dude look like a fool? Because obviously, what I keep telling myself is that this dude's ridiculous stories, 
They come from a place of pain. His wife was in the restaurant the other day, and uh, she's she's come, she comes around on a regular basis. She picks him up some days, drops him off, and has gotten to know some of the colleagues. And the other day, she started venting to one of our colleagues about how they're behind in all of their expenses. She's losing sleep. She's working 12-hour days driving for Uber while James is working 12-hour days at the restaurant. And it's just clear that the reason my colleague is so volcanically full of self-aggrandizing bullshit stories is because... He doesn't feel like he has much, very much legitimate stuff to sort of show for himself and for his accomplishments, which reminds me of something that I just heard from a millionaire artist. But first, before going deeper into this man's insecurities, I want to mention this very interesting thing that I saw in a porno one time, like 10 years ago. So one time in college, I was watching this, like, kind of amateur porn, and it was like, there were these two 30-somethings, and you get the, I don't know, there's always these descriptions under a porn video that, like, you don't know if you can trust it, but it was just saying, like, here are two people, they met at a club, and they came back, and they had sex. And so, in the video, this, this is a weird thing to describe, but I'm going to describe it. So they set their, so one of them sets a cell phone on the dresser, and they're laughing about it, and then they, like undress and they both get completely naked and things are heating up on the bed and they're both within frame of the camera and I noticed that they're both completely naked except the woman keeps her bra on. This is a straight couple incidentally. I figured maybe it had something to do with this thing that I had just heard about. A bunch of straight guys were polled and said that they found one-piece bikinis to be more sexy than two-piece bikinis. But also incidentally that reminds me, quick digression. Whose chair is that? Who bought that goddamn chair? That's not my chair. Not my chin, not my problem, that's what I say. I have a friend named Maria who listens to this podcast, and I was telling her one day, we were t I, was, I think I was asking her about whether she's seen any of the recent Spider-Man movies starring Tom Holland, and I mentioned that a big part of the reason why I don't go, go to see these movies is because I don't like that he is so young. He's younger than me. He's infinitely more successful than I am, and he's just frustratingly attractive. And the same goes, like, tenfold, for Timothy Chalamet. Timothy Chalamet starred most recently in Denis, Denis Villeneuve's Dune adaptation, and I read the novel Dune at the beginning of quarantine, and I thought it was great, I liked it a lot, but I cannot bring myself to go watch that movie because Timothy Chalamet is so goddamn attractive and it makes me angry. Because I just know, like I watch this man on screen and I know that wherever he goes, he is going to be the most attractive man in a room and he's going to get all the attention. Plus he's stupid rich. I just don't like that his life is so easy. And I hate that I am bothered by the ease and convenience and comfort and luxury of this stranger's life. Leonard Cohen wrote a song called Chelsea Hotel Number no. 2, and in it he's, he's describing a, like a, a quick fling that he had with Janis Joplin in the 70s. And there's a line in that song that I love, where he says of her, and then clenching your fist for the ones like us who are oppressed by the figures of beauty, you fixed yourself, and you said, well, never mind. We're ugly, but we have the music. I don't think it's fair that Timothy Chalamet is beautiful and he has the music. I, I'm alright with Adam Levine doing it, because he's not younger than me. Dune is about an alternate world. It's a place where re that readers can escape to. It's a desert planet. It's like high fantasy science fiction. It is an escape, it is an escape hatch for readers. And in my experience, readers tend to be sensitive people who are kind of beset by the cruelties and indignities of everyday life. I do think that, in equal measure, 
readers are trying to confront their problems, their demons, and to escape them. And I just maintain that Timothy Chalamet is too beautiful to want to escape this reality. Which is fucked up guy, I know, because we don't know what's going on in his head and in his heart. He could be a very tormented individual and he probably takes the craft of acting as seriously as anyone else takes any other craft. But so, Dune is such a geek culture thing, and I don't think that he, this guy fucks with geek culture because he fits in wherever he goes. His daily life, I have to imagine, is so pleasant that he was probably never the sort of person who might flee toward, you know, the pages of Arrakis or Narnia or Hogwarts or Middle-earth, which is weird. It's a weird fucking colonialist attitude that I have about, like, who owns these made-up territories. Suffice to say that I would be watching Dune for three hours with, and with Timothy Chalamet at its center, and I would be thinking, there's no chance in hell that this kid cares about this material. In fact, I, I would be of a mindset that like he's looking down at me for taking it seriously. Anyways, the reason I mention my friend Maria is because she is in her mid-30s and she I was venting about this to her and she was like, look, if it's any consolation, in my experience, grown women are not really attracted to people like Timothy Chalamet. He looks too fragile. I do not like the part of myself that is incredibly pleased to hear it, but I must confess, I am incredibly pleased to hear it. But anyways, we were talking about this porno that I saw in 2011. So these two people in this video are having sex and the woman is leaving her bra on and it's like a very earnest, playful affair. And um, and when the dude, when they finish having sex and the dude stands up, it's like this one flat shot with no cuts or anything. The dude stands up and he stands up from the bed and she sits up in the bed. And as she's moving up, her bra slips down and one of her breasts is exposed. And you see, you see that her breast hangs kind of low and she flashes to collect herself back into her bra. But when I saw that in college, like I, I played that little part back again and again and I was like, human moment, human moment in a porno. And what was particularly interesting about this dynamic in this video is that the sex between these two people, maybe the description is real and they had just met, more likely they are like a legit couple and they know each other very well and that's why they had this kind of camaraderie. But the sex was vacillating between like playful, and tender and aggressive and then lapsing back into like a giggly tenderness. Each one of them was enjoying themselves very much and also performing for their partner. And then suddenly there's just this flash where like the role breaks and you see this woman's insecurity. I think this is how I interpreted it, her insecurity about her breast and uh, oh my God, that reminds me. I was listening to a radio show one time, and there were three hosts on this radio show. It was two men and a woman. And they were doing a kind of like, like a relationship counseling segment on the show. People would call in and try to get advice about whatever's going on in their love life. And a woman calls in and she says, My husband and I have been married for 15 years, and I just suddenly noticed that his hair is getting really thin. Like I was looking at him over breakfast and it just hit me and I was like, oh my god, he's balding. And I'm wondering if he even notices, like, should I say something to him about it? And the female host, she goes, well, if you are feeling that maybe he... The two male hosts in, like, near-perfect unison go, don't, don't say, say anything. anything. And you can tell that the, both of the women are, like, kind of, like, taken aback by the vehemence of their response. But one of them then elaborates, and he's like, listen, I know you might not be aware of it, but I can guarantee you your husband has been staring at his hairline in the mirror since fucking high school. Don't say anything about this. I can assure you he realizes how thin it is. And the reason that that comes to mind in the wake of that, um... 
and talking about that porno and how that woman flashed that insecurity is because I think like the insecurity about like sagging breasts is not something that I really became aware of until I got older. But just these two episodes kind of made me muse on like the secrets that the genders kind of keep from one another, from one another, with some measure of success, I think. Unless I'm just, again, just particularly naive, living in my books, don't pay attention to what people are insecure about. Anyways, I was gonna tell you about that millionaire artist. Mr. Walkway, Mr. Walk down me, I'm the walkway. Lead me to the building, fuck you. On a recent episode of the Gary Vee podcast, he was, in, he was talking with an artist named Beeple. Just the other day, Beeple sold a piece of digital art for $60 million as an NFT. And in the wake of that sale, Vaynerchuk says to him, how has that money, how has this sale affected your art? And people says, well, I'm a human being, I'd, it would be disingenuous to say that it hasn't, but mainly what I would say has changed is that because I now have all this money, I no longer think about a, the saleability of a piece of art as I'm working on it. When in the past, this anxiety has maybe clouded his artistic judgment and he's thought maybe I should veer this project into something more marketable, whatever. In a, what he seems to be suggesting in a sense is that having become incredibly wealthy, having been divested of the burdensome thoughts that accompany one's artistic output when they are, you know, also financially struggling, he's almost becoming a more vivid person, more vivid manifestation of himself. He's realizing the kind of art that he would comfortably naturally create. And it kind of makes me wonder, if $70 million makes a previously struggling artist suddenly, you know, capable of creating the art that was always within them, they don't feel they have to pitch themselves or sell themselves to anyone, I wonder if James, my deceptive colleague, if he were suddenly given $70 million and all of his financial burdens were assuaged, if suddenly he were actually able to buy all of the material things that he flaunts to us, pretends to own, so that we would respect him, what kind of person would he become? And it makes me wonder, what kind of person would I become if I suddenly had $70 million? The crux of my constant grouchiness seems to be the fact that I'm always having to go and spend, you know, 12 or 13 hours as a bartender rather than working on my art. Well, if suddenly I had $70 million and I never had to do that again, would I become a sunnier person, or would I just find some other thing to be perpetually grouchy about? And if I had all that time to be making art, what would what would some of that art look like? And it's a question I would pitch to you. Consider all of the things in your life that, that take up so much of your time, things that start to shape your character because they expose you to, to, to certain people and certain experiences, and these are the things that are only in your life out of financial necessity. The friends that you've made at your job, the sorts of experiences that you're exposed to because of your job. And if suddenly you made $70 million and those things were gone from your life, who would you be without the, without the influences of those experiences and those people in your daily life? I don't know, just a sort of pseudo-philosophical thing to consider amid my other ponderances of porno and haircuts. Anyways, thanks for listening. <laughs> I appreciate your patience, and I'll talk to you next time. listening to the Thousand Movie Project podcast. If you like what you heard and you'd like to hear more of it, you can of course check out our back catalog, but you can also support the show by becoming a patron. If you go to patreon.com forward slash thousand movie project, or if you just go to patreon.com, there's like a search bar. I don't know if you can find this show if you just type in my name, but definitely if you type in the name of the show, it will come up. 
all those donations get pulled up and they amount ultimately to like what I would earn at a every month, what I would earn in a shift of bartending, which means that every now and then I can take off a bartending shift and just churn out an episode. Apart from providing some financial breathing room, it's also super like encouraging to think that anyone is listening to this and they're like so interested and so supportive that they're gonna like throw a few bucks at me. Like, so for the for the financial well-being of the show, the regularity of the show, and for the, the warming kernel of encouragement, you can, again, Go to patreon.com, search for a thousand movie project podcast, and make a pledge make a pledge. As usual, thank you for listening, and thanks for your support.